listening to the Mouthful of Graffiti podcast, affectionately known as The Mog, an open forum and promotional outlet for budding artists and creatives from all across the Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Brad Cox, not necessarily affectionately known as anything other than Brad Cox, but I'm here all the same. Let's see who and what we're chewing on today on The Mog. Friends, East Coastians, and country men and women of all ages, welcome to the MOG. As always, links for our guests will be made available in the description, and a song or some type of promotional feature will be tacked on to the end of each episode. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors, Vagabond Sandwich Company, Capricost Books, Musicland, Black Eyed Susie's, Double Groove Brewing, Baltimore Decal Gal, and Reb Records. Remember to love local, support local, and to eat and drink local. Don't forget to use discount code MOG. Pod for a 10% discount at Capricost Books. Everyone knows you can't stop by Main Street Bel Air without grabbing one of Black Eyed Susie's legendary orange crushes and a killer lunch or dinner. Black Eyed Susie's has been supporting local for a long time. It's your one-stop spot for original and cover entertainment and an afternoon or evening out with friends on their rooftop deck. If you haven't heard, there's something very special about Double Groove Brewing. It's a melting pot of personalities, ages, loves, interests, and musical tastes. There are hippies, professionals, rockers, folk artists, friends and families here. Throw in the most delicious and satisfying craft beer on the planet and this place is complete magic. They are tireless supporters of the local talent. Stop by their location in Forest Hill for a pint and a night out with friends. This just in, Rapola Entertainment presents A Light Divided with the Almas on the Kinetic Energy Tour on October 22nd at Zen West. This is an all-ages show featuring A Light Divided, the Almas, Relentless Souls, iCraft Music, and Night's Edge. Again, Rapola Entertainment presents A Light Divided with the Almas on the Kinetic Energy Tour. Mike Potter has been an active supporter and participant in the Baltimore music scene for nearly two decades. Whether it was smashing the kit with Schizo Calypso, Speed Dogs, Kings of the Revolution, or Out of the Cold, you could always hear him coming. You may have even seen him playing bass in We Love the Underground. Mike is an incredibly talented musician with a lot of albums under his belt, and we're lucky to have him here today. Join me in welcoming Mike Potter to the MOG. Mike, welcome to the MOG. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. So it's actually probably been more than two decades at this point, I'd imagine. Oh, it's probably... I mean, how long have you been playing music, I guess, professionally in the Baltimore music scene? Well, there was once a time that Jesus was trying out the pan flute, and I was like... <laughs> so it's been a long time. Let me read uh, some announcements real quick, and then we'll get into this interview. Right. Uh, first up, the Authors and Artists event will be coming to the Armory, otherwise known as Castle Grayskull, on Main Street Bel Air on November 6th. Uh, Hartford County's Comic-Con, Stellar Con, is returning to the APG FCU Arena on November 20th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. For tickets, go to apgfcuarena.com. And the Hartford Dance Theater presentation of the Nutcracker is returning to the Amos Center on the weekend of December 3rd. And the first person to message me the word swag to Facebook or Instagram will get a $25 gift card to the Baltimore Decal Gal Shop. So, Mike... I've known you for a very long time. We just kind of uh, talked about how long it's been. But for me, I think that it's been about 21 years. Uh, so tell me something I don't know about you. Wow. That's – that's. Um, like, did you used to play woodwinds? Were you living in another state at some point, the Russian mob? <laughs> I, who knows? <laughs> I mean, I, I would say I guess – that back in middle school, at one point, I picked up a trombone and kind of learned very loosely how to play it. 
Okay. Along to some, you know, I started playing along with Chicago albums. Really? Yeah. With the trombone? Yeah, with the trombone. It's funny because my father was friends with a drummer who also played trombone. Yeah. And once I picked that up, it made their little get-togethers more interesting. I was going to actually kind of ask you about some of your introduction into music, and I had no idea you played the trombone. If I picked one up now, it'd probably take me a couple of weeks to get back into things. Yeah. You know, there's amateurs involved, and, you know, it's 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 a whole different world when it comes in comparison to the percussion that we're used to yeah. with the guitars and the pianos and the, and the drums. and. But it requires breathing techniques. Absolutely, and... like, like vocals. Yeah. So if anything, it helped with that. Yeah. Well, we met in 2000 is kind of what I've ballparked. And when I was recording the fourth Schizoclipso album, Stignation, my studio drummer at the time, Tyler Ingersoll, had moved up to Delaware. And I was looking for somebody that could come in and basically play some drums on some of the tracks. And we met through a mutual friend, David Pace, at the 12th Planet Recording Studio. I think the first time we actually hung out was at a Burger King, just kind of getting to know each other. But how did Dave introduce me to you? I feel like it was through, like, Matt Bokniak, maybe. No, like, when Dave was like, hey, man, there's this oh, guy. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to tie a whole bunch of stories together here. Yeah. It is really weird, the, the intersections, because we've been friends for a really, really long time. And it almost seems like uh, like Gary and I, it's like it's almost like it was predestined. Yeah. On some level. Yeah. I, I guess my interaction with Dave was through guys like Nick Shobe. Okay. Derek Credito. Yeah. And Chris O'Rourke. Yeah. Because we had a band going for a while, and um, that was a catastrophe. Uh, <laughs> what was the name of that band? Derek, I think Derek said it on the show. Isolation. But... Okay, yeah. Yeah. Are there demos out there? I hope not. <laughs> Actually, I have. Derek's I, probably got them. I have a cut somewhere in my house that I hope never sees the light of day again. Yeah. Uh, and if I find it, I may burn it. No, in all honesty, even the bad stuff is part of the musical journey. It is. And, uh, you know, I've got a closet full of that stuff that I hope nobody ever hears. But <laughs> same. But the reality is if I die, Samantha can unearth it. It'd be like Pandora's box <laughs> of trash. <laughs> It'll be great. So uh, one of the things that was really cool about the way you came into Schizoclipso was the music you were playing at the time was absolutely nothing like Schizoclipso. But you were able to take the music and really put kind of a believable feel behind it. So what was it like hearing that music for the first time? And what was your approach? I mean... I was a kid, you know, I was just, I wanted to play music and have fun. I still just want to play music and have fun. How old were you in 2000? 20 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. I remember you smoked. Yep. And you drank with us. Yes, I did. But, uh... A lot. So you just wanted to have a good time. Well, m music was always the, the gateway to whatever it was I was looking for. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the way it is with anyone who ever decides to take that musical path in their life. It's, yeah. it's, it's much like a drug. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's a gateway to another level another plane just to kind of take you away from everything that's going on and and man with everything that's going on in the world right now it now is the essential time for music to really shine yeah. it almost feels like we're we're doing another rock and roll renaissance like the 60s and the 70s like we we are coming we have to be coming up on that the world needs it yeah because rock and roll for all intents and purposes it's not dead it's just extremely underground at this point yes yeah i, I find that the best the best stuff that I'm hearing anymore is stuff that's really not on the radio. It's not no. being pushed. And I feel very sad about that because there are so many incredible, highly talented, motivated artists that are out there that are just getting by on on, on breadcrumbs. A lot of it's right here in the, in the Baltimore music scene, honestly. Yeah. If, if you want to find rock and roll bands, you're not going to hear it on the radio unless you go to like Spotify or maybe an XM station or something like that. But, you know, obviously we talked about Schizoclipso and you play in those shows and you were the first live like full-time drummer for that band. And and some of the shows were pretty wild and, and <laughs> shocking even. So, you know, coming from the musical background that you came from, what was that like? 
for you. I, there had to be a part of you that was like, what am I doing? Yeah. Well, see, and the cool part about it in, in that band, and because I've because I've been in so many different bands where I've done, been in, you know, I'm a drummer here, I'm a bass player there, I'm a guitar player there, I'm a singer there. You know, right. the cool thing about coming into Schizo Calypso when I did was I was the drummer. So I kind of got to be in the back and just watch all this unfold. Yeah. Um, and, and you weren't really a punk rock guy. So no, I wasn't. You probably didn't even know like what maybe the mindset of like someone like myself was. Well, you, you know what kind of... You, you showed me you showed me tracks from all of your first three albums because right. obviously we're doing a lot of that live. And your first album to me was my way of kind of reliving Nirvana. Yeah, that's it, that it, let my inner Dave Roll shine, if you will. Yeah, you know, and that and that was cool because it was so much energy, and the more energy we gave to the crowds, the more they gave it back, and it was just I could just be back there and provide that just that backbeat that that let the rest of the show happen. Yeah, and and was, I say show because it was definitely a show. It, it was. There were inflatable pool <laughs> animals. and So when all that was going on there, you were recording your debut album for what would become Speed Dogs. But I think, if I'm remembering correctly, you actually recorded a lot of that album yourself. Yes. Yeah. In, um, in your basement. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it started... So Chris O'Rourke was, rest in peace, was yeah. uh, learning the... The art of recording. He comes up in so many conversations. It's almost like he's still here. It's so weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, he le- he definitely left a footprint. And he is still here. I mean. Yeah. Well, and, you know, how many recordings of, of and I know that he's been on several of mine earlier on. Yeah. How many recordings of yours is he on? You, know, you put it in and you listen to it and you play back and you go, oh, God, there he is. You know, Yeah, that's him. You can you hear it right away. Yeah, it's unmistakable. But yeah, you were recording these projects in your basement. Mm-hmm. Uh, very DIY. Yeah. And tell me about that. So. Chris was was going to Sheffield at the time, and what he was learning, he kind of was trying to do some freelance on the side. He had picked up a 16-track Roland uh, digital recording system, brought it over my house. I had a, a 12 to 14 songs that I had ready that I wanted to record, and we painstakingly went through each track, yeah, each individual instrument at a time, miking drums individually, miking the guitars, miking the bass, you know, miking vocal after vocal overdub and guitar overdubs and i'd say i was a drummer since i was two so that was obviously and still is my my best instrument you know the, the instrument that i am the most at home with i guess uh so guitar was always kind of that last instrument i picked up yeah which is weird because i know it almost seems like now you prefer playing the guitar and singing yeah it's just i don't know anymore it just seems like no matter what, if I want if I want to write a song, I'm either picking up a guitar or sometimes a, a, you know a keyboard or something just to kind of get the chords out there so I can throw a, a melody over top. But back then, it was so basic my my level of actual guitar playing that there were so many overdubs that I had to throw in there just to make things sound right. Full and, and- yeah, yeah, and and you know, thankfully. Uh, Chris was there, so he was able to just grab a hold of the guitar and and you know I'd be able to tell him what I what I wanted, what I was hearing in my head, and he could lay it down. Um, and in other instances, my dad, yeah. being the musician that he is, being bass player and guitar player, and um, still still plays on some of my tracks to this day. Uh, he was able to to chime in and, and kind of throw throw some things in there here and there, even for schizo back in the day. Yeah, he did. When we originally did Stignation, that, that was that opening track mm-hmm. that uh, <laughs> I did the talk over was picked for that reason. Yeah. So, you know, when did you start picking up the sticks and running with it? And when did you realize, you know what, I'm good at this? So my dad got me started playing drums when I was two. Okay. So this is even way before the trombone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So my dad was always in bands and, you know, uh, playing 
different types of music, rock and blues and funk and, you know, whatever was really the big genre at the time. He'd, yeah. he'd adapt and, and, you know, move with it, much much like one Brad Cox. Yeah. And he, he saw me, we were at a family Christmas party and one of our other family members uh, had a drum set. And they brought it out at a family Christmas party and I sat back there and was holding 4-4 time right in front of the whole family and they are like, Hmm, maybe there's something to this. So, so you already knew like the kick pattern, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I had four four time down. So you know, the second birthday, pops buys me a drum kit. So uh, from that point, uh, he had friends obviously that he played in bands with that would come over and teach me little things here or there. But by and large, I was uh, a product of listening to Led Zeppelin records. Yeah. So so not not a lot's changed in the past like 25, 30 years. <laughs> not really. Yeah. It's it's kind of like seeing Animal as a forty year old. Now, yeah. <laughs> so even prior to isolation, if I'm remembering correctly, you actually had or were in bands with your father and maybe a teacher mm-hmm. and doing like kind of cover gigs, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we had a band called North Paul because we were all left, right. we were all left handed uh, playing right handed instruments. So we went with that. It was actually my my um, my, my math teacher in high school, uh, Mr. Greg Stump. OK. He was playing guitar and, and my dad was playing bass. And at one point. Early in its evolution, my dad was playing guitar with Mr. Stump, with Greg Stump. Okay. And we had another bass player, Matt. He lived up in Pennsylvania. Uh, and we played a pool party one year for, I think it was the owner of Beverly's Pools. Okay. Uh, that was that was pretty wild. It was, it was a summertime gig, and I was a high school kid, you know. Yeah. So, I'm, hey, this is cool. You know, I think I was what, 14, 15 years old, maybe. It was it was wild. I mean, and there there were other little things here and there. Yeah. Throughout time, that kind of just mostly cover stuff, you know, just to kind of get my feet wet in, in music before I really knew what the heck I was. Doing. I mean, and and I started writing songs when I was in middle school, but I had no idea what the heck I was doing. Sure. I, I really. You so, just had the sense to not put it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I did try to show it to people, uh, and you know they 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 put on a, a good face for me, I guess. Yeah. I mean, now that I, I look back at those things, I'm like, wow, that was trash. What was I thinking? <laughs> You've got to start somewhere. Yeah. To continue, like, fleshing out the story, we played together mm-hmm. uh, in each other's bands. You played about eight to ten Schizo Calypso gigs. I probably played comparable amount of Speed Dogs gigs. And we partied a lot. <laughs> it's not even, like, it's not even laughable. Uh, it's almost it's almost scary because yeah. it was absolutely insane. I don't know like what our dynamic was or how we played off one another, but there really was this like uh, you said, Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain, and like I, I don't know whoever you want to attribute yourself to, guys kind of going at it, like living the the lifestyle. <laughs> but we weren't there, but we're like we, we didn't care because there was almost no illusions of getting there, and we just went for it. We partied our tails off. So, are there any parties or any memories from that era that you re- are fond of that you remember? Oh wow, I know it's tricky because it's like how do you remember that? <laughs> I, you know, honestly, whether it was at your house or mine, whether it was the middle night or the following morning, just walking over all the bodies on the floor. <laughs> yeah. People just would party Stepping literally over each other. until they dropped. Yeah. It, it, I mean, in the middle of the living room floor, it was, it was crazy, but it was so cool because even while the people were sleeping on the floor, there's still a few of us. Still going. Still going. You know, drinking ourselves sober until the sun came up. Yeah, we we lost control for sure. 
Those, those were like the uh, the dark years from like 2001 to 2002 and a half. It was just kind of a dark but fun time. Yeah, I'd say for me it was just a blur. I think, yeah, that because it's such a blur, I actually have some PTSD from that whole time frame. <laughs> I remember like going to your, your house after a, a show and then going back home at like 7 in the morning and mm-hmm. then like going to bed and then waking up eating like a Chinese buffet and then doing it again All that over night. again, yeah. yeah. And it didn't matter whether it was Monday night or Saturday night. Yeah. It really didn't. It just kept going. I don't know how many times I went to work the next morning still drunk from the night before and, you know, getting about halfway through the day going, how in the hell did I get here? Yeah. <laughs> Being, uh, you know, in our 40s at this point, I I think I would die if I if I even tried to live that lifestyle for one week. Oof. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean... There's a lot of people who missed all that, but you did not. <laughs> you were there with us, and yeah, that was that was it was exciting. It was rough. It was it was raw. It was it was just kids being kids. I mean, and, and at the time we were in our twenties, yeah. And if you would have called us kids then, we would have wanted to fight you over it. Yeah, but yeah. Now you look back, you're like, God, we we were kids. And there was a merging of the peer groups that was kind of like amplifying all this. And your father was in on it too. Like we were yeah. all partying together, but you <laughs> had a really extensive peer group. So like when you would go out and play a show at the Brass Monkey, the the place was packed. Yeah. The gills and and a good third of those people were at least a third were coming back to your house afterwards yeah, to was, throw down. It was absolutely insane. There were times when there were people at at our house that we didn't know who the hell they were. Yeah. And we're just like, okay, how old are you? Who are you? Where are you from? Are you staying here? Right. And the most important part there was, are you staying here? Because it was, that was always the fear, you know, some dummy goes too far and then rolls out and kills a family. I, you know, I, I don't care how intoxicated you are. That's just, that's a very sobering, um, yeah. Time and that's what I'm saying. Like we, we in a lot of ways we're very lucky too. Very, and that's why I have a little bit of like kind of PTSD to it. You look back and like how, mm-hmm. how did nothing bad happen to anybody? Yeah, you know. But one thing that remained because uh, time does what time did, and that is that you know over time people kind of get pulled apart. Less people are going to the shows, but one thing remained consistent, and that's that you continued to write mm-hmm. and the music continued. So you, you know you had Speed Dogs for at least I think two albums. And then you change the name at some point out to of Out of the Cold. Mm-hmm. And then at this point, you're doing more just under your own uh, name, Michael yeah. Potter. Yep. But writing as a solo artist, I want to get into this and explore it a little bit, is this idea of like, it's not like when you're in a band where bands tend to like form an identity. Like everybody kind of compromises a little bit and the, the band gets a sound. Yeah. But when you're a solo artist, you go all over the place. <laughs> For it's, sure. It's very difficult to nail yourself down. Do you feel like... There is that sense of almost identity crisis and being a solo artist because I've always had that. I've always had a bit of an identity crisis. Yeah, you know, I was going to say before you actually took me down that path that the whole recording and writing by yourself as a solo artist, it's kind of full circle because that's where I started right. and that's where you started as well. But yes, my, my most recent album that I recorded mostly in 2020 with a, with a few songs coming in 21, I'm kind of all over the place. I, I kind of am. And even the, the album before that... Uh, which for whatever reason I never released, it was all over the place. And and that's I think maybe that had something to do with me not releasing my last album. Yeah. Was because it was it was so all over it was so chaotic. It I, I didn't know what direction it was going from one song to the next. Right. How do you put a group of songs like that together in an album and feel okay or content with the order? You, you really 
can't the, almost. Yeah, the only band that really I think successfully pulled that kind of an approach off, Mr. Well, Bumble. One, no, I was going to say actually Zeppelin. <laughs> okay, where they experimented okay. with so many different styles, but it's still there was a common thread throughout. I don't know if it was just Robert Plant's voice, if it was Jimmy Page's playing, but yeah, yeah, I I, I see where you're going with that. Um, I don't know, I. You're right, because you, you kind of start just writing what you feel in the moment, mm-hmm. because there's no one there to tell you, whoa, 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 slow your roll. Right. Like, what That has nothing to do with anything we've done, you know? Mm-hmm. And as much as you can miss that because of the band setting and the camaraderie, it's very freeing. It is. Because you can re- literally just be whoever you want to be. And we're complex people. We're not one-dimensional beings. Right. And, and that was kind of uh, the same approach I had when I was doing the, the early records was like, one day I felt like I wanted to explore funk music. Mm-hmm. And the next day it'd be like, I want to do an industrial song. Or I want to <laughs> do a punk song. Or I want to do an alternative song. And I think it's it's something that hasn't been explored on this show. And you're another solo artist. So I was curious if you battle with that or you just completely embrace it. Because I don't think that you have a choice. There's definitely a conflicted approach. Yeah. Because you start to think about it, and after you write the song and you listen to it, and then you listen to the other songs along with it, you're like, oh, okay, uh, what, what did I do there? Yeah. But again, it's, I mean, music is, music has always been based on emotion. Yeah. And you really can't deprive yourself as a, as a writer from what you're feeling in that moment. Yeah. It's, it's akin to writing a book, which you should know. I mean, you've got plenty of experience there. You could be in the middle of a storyline, and instantly you're, you're drawn to the, to the next character. You're on to the next chapter. Right. It's it's the same way with writing an album. I mean, one song to the next is like just a different chapter. I think what, what I did find was over time, if your voice remained your voice, you could pull it off. If your voice was changing every single song, yeah. then it's like, okay, there's really no identity to this person yet. Fair well, enough. Yeah, like, yeah. By the time I got to like the We Love the Underground albums, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to do a jazz song here at the very end, but <laughs> you know, I'm going to still sing it the way Brad would sing it. Yeah. You know, but, you know, before Speed Dolls, you were doing a lot of experimentation. I, I think I even have a CD in, in one of these closets of some of your work. Have you ever thought about like going back and like reimagining like a, a song you wrote 20, 25 years ago to see what it would sound like now? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I have. And and every once in a while when I will be sitting either in my living room or my basement, I'll you know grab the acoustic and just start yeah. strumming. And then I find myself playing one of those old songs and I'm like... <laughs> Wow, how did I remember that? Yeah. And then I start, like you said, I start thinking, like, I wonder if the, I can, like, what breathe. What if this song had a melody line? <laughs> yeah, right? right? Like, you know, can I breathe life back into this 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 corpse of a, of a song? I feel like, well, if I did re-record some of these old songs and make them good, then those old recordings now turn into demos. That, yeah, yeah, So it's true. kind of a way of, like, cleaning up the, yeah. in reverse. But at the same time, I, I've also found, with the past couple albums that I've, that I've been recording, yeah. that... Sometimes you, you, you'll you lay something down and you feel like it was awesome. And then you go back and you listen to it and you're like, oh, that's, I got to redo that vocal. Yeah. And then you go back and you redo the vocal and you're like, it doesn't have the same feel. It doesn't have right. the same character as the first take. Yeah. And I've found more times than I can count on all my fingers that I go back to that first take as raw as it is. And, and as much as I might think, well, there's something there little, that I need to fix. You little know, sharp, little flat, whatever. Yeah, I just, I stay with it because it just, it captures the essence of what I was trying to, to record. You recorded a version of a song that's going to be on the Veteran Avenue album, Love, Sick and Sorry. Yeah. And we actually, we recorded it twice because the first version disappeared. It disappeared. Yeah. But I think that we all kind of are a little bit perplexed by the situation because the first version, although imperfect and it was just a really quick lay, was the better one. And we could never quite figure out what, what the dynamic was. Yeah. They got it to there. 
Yeah, it, it was. It's a microcosm of what we were just talking about. I mean, it, that that song right there. If if we could have just captured that and, and put it out, uh, yeah. But it wasn't finished. Yeah, it wasn't. We we couldn't do anything with it. And but it had it, such this. It had this really cool like Stones Melon Camp kind of vibe to it. It did. It did. I'm actually curious what your catalyst has been to be a writer because I, I don't know that I know that about you. I, you know, it's. Because I think you're a more uh, emotional person than maybe you would let on to the average bystander that would walk by and meet you. For for sure, yeah. In in that regard, that's what made drumming so appealing to me. Because as much of a extrovert as I am, I yeah. am an introvert as well. Who knows? Maybe it's something astrological. I, I I don't know. I couldn't couldn't tell you. But to me, what got really got me into writing wasn't necessarily to put myself out there. It was because. Growing up listening to Zeppelin, the Beatles, yeah. you know, the, the the heavy hitters, you know, the, the 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 absolute epitome of songwriters, you know, to me, that was when music was at its peak for me. And, and of course, granted, I wasn't alive when those bands were really doing it. But you get to a point where in the late 80s and early 90s, let's just say, the music to me was not my favorite. Okay. So that inspired me to say, okay, you know what? If I don't like what's on the radio right now, maybe I should just try to do better. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I've got these questions. I'm trying to find them because I want to kind of skip around now. Because from the outside looking in at you, there always seemed to be a bit of a disconnect, from my opinion, uh, not with the music. The music was always sound. It was good. Uh, but with the marketing, uh, like there was almost a reluctance or maybe just a discomfort in in that approach or that aspect of the music, because obviously you want people to hear it. Mm -hmm. um, was it that you just didn't know how to properly market yourself or that there was a fear of maybe not being received? Like you would put yourself all out there, like here it is, and maybe it just wouldn't be received. Yeah, I, I, I'd have to say it's perhaps a combination of both. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've come from... I've come from a family that where we, we all work with our hands and, you know, yeah. it's, it's pretty blue collar and old school, traditional conservatism, if you will. I, I don't know. It, and or is it just that you're not a really showy person? See, and that's and that's just I don't know, yeah. you know, because at times, you know, uh, there's been times you've put I'm a peacock cap and let me fly, you know, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> there's been times where I've heard something that you've done and I'm just kind of sitting there here. You, you don't see me. But I'm like, man, he should really be pushing this sponsor an ad, do something. And, it, you know, it doesn't happen. I'm just curious because I've known you for 21 years and it's never really been your way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I was just curious if there was a reason for that or if it was just I just don't know how to market myself. I, I think it's a combination of things. I, yeah. I think that there is yeah, because it's it's like that with a lot of people. If you really get down to, to the brass tacks, there is a fear of rejection. Yeah, uh, sure. Which, strangely enough, I never really had that when I would take the stage. Yeah, because I guess different. Yeah, when you're in the moment, you know that those people are there for you anyway. For two weeks leading up to actually getting on stage, I'm a nervous wreck. Yeah. And then, like, the moment I have to go on that stage, I, I'm like a different person. Well, and, and again... It's like I, fight or flight, and you have no choice but to fight, because you can't run out. What are you going to do, run off the stage? Well, I mean, people have. <laughs> I'm sure they have. <laughs> but, you know, there, that also... Maybe, maybe you're thinking the same way. When I go up on that stage and I look out at a crowd, I, I take on the realization that, that they're there for me. Right. So even if I'm not that great, they still came there for me. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to actually putting something out there that you feel like is solid or concrete, I don't know. There's always been, there's always been criticisms, sure. uh, but none greater than my own. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, I, think, I think you're 100% right on that. I think we all deal with that. And I think that what happens is it compounds over the years. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get this idea in your head of who you are or what you're supposed to be at this point. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes almost like you, you become your own stumbling block. You can't just go out on stage. It's like, no, I'm Brad and I have this standard now. And if I don't live up to that standard, it's almost like destroying the mythos that you've kind of created around yourself. Yeah. And it kind of creates this insurmountable yeah. mountain, this hill in front of you that you just can't trek. Which is, it's probably just complete bullshit, but it, it, it <laughs> is a thing. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, on a totally... Unrelated note, uh, one thing that you've always had is you've always tried to incorporate your father into all of your projects. Mm -hmm. And I was curious because you have a very, very tight-knit family. Mm -hmm. Um, You guys hang out all the time. I've been to many, many a Sunday afternoon party or whatever. And would you consider your father one of your heroes? Sure, because I think that he's – I think he's lived his life the right way. Yeah. And these days, who really knows what the right way is? But he – he sacrificed a lot to go into being an auto mechanic to provide for his family. Even before my mother and I were in the picture, yeah. my, my sister's my half sister, her, her mother was my father's first wife, and she was killed unfortunately in a car accident before you know my mother and my father ever met. Obviously, yeah. And um, my, my sister was just a young girl at the time. Yeah, that that story is always so heavy. Yeah, but he kept. He kept trucking to, to make sure my sister was taken care of and then uh, enter my mother. You know, they, they meet and, um, you know, not, not far after there's me and seven years later is my brother. So, yeah. you know, he, for... Well, he's a great bass player. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And guitar player, but... At this point, yeah, I'm sure that if you talk to some of his, uh, his, his former bandmates in the past, they'd probably... Put him on the guitar. Yeah, you know, because he he is he is a heck of a, a lead guitarist and and rhythm guitarist for that matter. He's he's always been a consummate professional. He's he's got the gift of improv. Not everybody has that. Yeah, a lot of people can play the guitar and play it very well, mm-hmm. but they have to know exactly what they're going to play. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't. Yeah, he he can just go with it. Yeah, and that made it really fun for me growing up because especially when I was a drummer, I didn't have to worry about where the song was going. He was taking us there. Yeah, and and it helped me because it helped me learn to listen and to be able to follow and almost instinctually change with bandmates. So right. it, it translates to other projects. It helped me with Schizoclipso for sure. Yeah, I mean, when he came in, and I think it was that that song, Stignation, was the first time we recorded together, I believe. And he was there. You just brought him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like it was something that was planned. He just came to the studio, and it just happened that the song would have been cooler with a little bit of a lead in the beginning and then mm-hmm. throughout. So that worked out really well. And, and we were all hungover. <laughs> yeah, I've always enjoyed your father. I've enjoyed playing with him over the years. But what are some of your influences? I know one of your influences from the early days. I'm not even going to bring it up because it always has this bad stigma about it. But who are some of the bands that you look up to? Uh, starting off, uh, Zeppelin, The Beatles. According um, to your Spotify, it's Zeppelin, Food Fighters, Pearl Jam, STP, and Nirvana. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty on point. <laughs> yeah. I was actually a bit surprised to see Kurt in there because he totally gets dismissed often by musicians. But for what he was and what he did, he was actually very good. Yeah. We just never got to see him blossom. Yeah, that's the sad part. Like, if uh, another 10, 15 years, like, I'd be very curious to hear what he would have done. It's so it's so Shakespearean, really. Yeah. He, he passes, and now we have Foo Fighters. Right. You know, with without his passing, there'd be no Foo Fighters. I don't think that he could have gone on any further. I don't know. I, you know, maybe because he maybe Grohl would have quit the band at some point. He, who knows? Yeah, but it wouldn't have been what it is now. No, it, not ne- at all. it never could have been. I know you're a huge Dave Grohl fan. Do you see him as like the quintessential rock star in 2021? You know, yes and no. He's another guy that I feel like 
he's he's held on to that anti rock star vibe. Yeah, but, but he is still the biggest rock star in the world, and probably. he's doing it right. Like you don't you don't hear about him trashing hotel rooms, and you right. know as as fun as that was when we were twenty years old. Yeah. But he's that guy that just, he goes out on stage, he puts every last ounce of himself into every performance, along with his bandmates. And people don't walk away from a Foo Fighters show feeling like they didn't get what they paid for. Yeah. You know, Taylor Hawkins, his drummer, obviously, with Foo Fighters, big fan of his, dating back to his days, you know, touring with Alanis Morissette and just always being this this wiry dude back behind the kit, arms flailing everywhere and hair going in every which direction. Cool drummer to watch. Awesome drummer to listen to. And recently he was interviewed and, you know, they asked him what it was like playing, you know, as a drummer for Foo Fighters. And basically he told them, you know, well, you know, it's you have to physically prepare or, or you're not making it through a, a concert playing drums for the Foo Fighters because right. it's it's mentally and physically exhausting and, and emphasis on the physically. They're just so upbeat and in your face the whole time. It's just, you know, you're, you're going all out. Yeah. So... I think just as as a as a whole, that band really, it, it, they're they're the quintessential rock band. I mean, I've asked this on other shows, but do you think even being a rock star in 2021 is something to aspire to? Man, that's it's a great question. And and honestly, like right now, no. it's almost like passe. Yeah, because the end thing now is uh, rap, hip hop, pop. Yeah, or just viral fame for just doing something. Silly. Oh my god, yes. And it's that's the most annoying part of the modern era to me. Is you see things on social media, people doing things, and they're absolutely famous for it, and it's some of the dumbest crap I've ever seen in right. my life. It's basically like those, like those drunken acoustic tracks that you would write. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you record that, you put it up on YouTube, and suddenly that goes viral, and you're famous for that. But it's like, who the hell wants to be famous for that? <laughs> that no. was a joke. You yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. It blows my mind. That's why I kind of, at least recently kind of shied away from social media. I'm still there, but I, I've kind of backed away a little bit just yeah. because it's it's either ridiculous or it's negative. Yeah. You don't see much positive. No, and if somebody starts getting a little bit of, like, wind behind their sails, there's somebody there with a knife to cut the sail. 100%. So. Yeah, but if we're honest, it's been like that forever. It has, but you didn't have to hear about it. People wouldn't be so bold as to go into your wall and actually tell you. No, it, it surely wasn't as prevalent. People are getting more and more bold, it seems. Especially well, the political climate was ugly, mm-hmm. but that's kind of carried over. I think people started to realize what they could get away with saying. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, oh, you sponsor an ad, like you sponsor a song, and chances are somebody's going to you know, slag you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's what it is. Yeah. I don't even care anymore at this point. It's like I feel like I got to live a cool life and do some cool things and whatever. But it's it's definitely a nasty culture. It is, and it's it's not it's not right. It's not fair because to me the biggest part of the battle is really putting yourself out there. Yeah, you know, sure you work hard writing a song, recording it, getting it, you know, published everything. Putting it out there is a whole nother animal. Uh, it's and so I, anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah. Like, here's my song. I just spent like. Two, three weeks working on it. I recorded it. I spent money on it. I, I, I wrote it. It took me time to do that. I, I thought up all these harmonies and all these leads. And then like 24 hours after you release it, somebody else released a song. Somebody else released a song. Somebody else released a song. Yeah. And you're just gone. Well, and I think the most frustrating part, at least for me, is I, I, can, I can go back and listen to these recordings 150 Three thousand times in in a week, you know. Mean, meanwhile, you know, my wife's upstairs with her earbuds in, like trying to listen to something else because she's tired right. of hearing it. And I'm still so excited about it. Yeah. And then 
you build all this up and you listen to it and you listen to it and you listen to it and you finally think you have it perfect, especially in, in my case, because I'm, I'm recording it all. I'm mixing it all myself. You know, I'm, I'm literally doing every instrument. I'm doing everything with the song. And then I get so hyped up and then I put it out there and it's like, you might get a comment. Hey, cool. Yeah. And nice job, buddy. Oh, so talented, you know, and, and granted those compliments are very, but would you buy it when it comes out? Right. Because I was talking to Athena Hiotis on the show, mm-hmm. and that was a great interview. But she was saying, you know, at this point, you know, and she's right, the music isn't the product anymore. The music's free. Mm-hmm. So you have to think outside of the music. Like, you're just doing the music because you love to do the music. Right. But what can you do uh, to enhance that experience, bring into some of these other variables, whether it's writing or whatever? And I, I thought that was very interesting that she had that perspective because she's absolutely correct. Yeah, no, that's that's spot on. Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier on, but you are a Beatles guy mm-hmm. over a Stones guy. I mean, that, there's no ambiguity <laughs> with you with that. But uh, over the years, because your dad is such a Stones guy, yeah. have you kind of like warmed up to at least the songwriting? Because I know Mick, Mick does nothing for you. I get that. No, no, he's, to me, for he's, most singers, he doesn't. But yeah, to me, he's not a singer. But he is. And, Hell and of a I've, showman. Oh my god, yes! Like he's he's a frontman extraordinaire. And, and in fairness, he did choose a way of singing that he could continue to do forever. Yeah. Like you hear all these like '80s guys, literally and, forever. Because I think he's 127 years old now. Yeah, it, maybe. I mean, in dog years. What is he, uh, 700? Something like that. But Keith Richards still hasn't beat by a thousand years. Yeah, and somehow Keith's alive, but Charlie gone. Yeah, I don't get that either. Rest yeah. in peace. Actually, a very interesting thing about you is that you, and I don't know if it's because it kind of just missed your radar. How old are you? 40. I'll be 41 okay. in two weeks. And that's that you were never really an 80s rock guy. No. It completely missed your radar. Now, I do know that you were about four years behind me, mm-hmm. which makes sense. You would come right in at the alternative. That would be during your formative years, the alternative movement would have been king. Style aside, the 80s had a lot of good musicianship. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Van um, Halen. Um, yeah. And I've grown appreciation for all of that in 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 time. As bloated as it was, there was mm-hmm. some good stuff. Yeah, there, there was. Absolutely. And and again, I, I've grown appreciate, you know, an appreciation for all that yeah. in, in my, you know, my later years here. But the part of the 80s that I really enjoyed goofy as it may seem michael jackson was just that was man yeah the guy it was it was awesome the talking heads were one of my favorite bands burning down the house to this day is still yeah. one of my favorite songs in fact we played that together in a in we a, did a group. we're gonna and get into we that did, we played pretty well too yeah and then years later oh my god the cardigans did that with uh tom jones yeah that was a cool cover that was a very cool cover yeah uh but yeah so there there were there were several 80s songs, Yacht Rock as it may be. I was going to say, yeah, there's so many weird. There was like the other side of the 80s, which yeah. was like your Yacht Rock, Hollow Notes, Huey Lewis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had. Um, oh, yeah, the news, baby. There was also Boston, Foreigner, yeah. Kansas. Well, Kansas was kind of, they've been around forever, but yeah. But there was that other side of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And even me going back, I listened to like all, all that like guilty pleasure music and be like, yeah, it's actually kind of cool. Yeah. Especially like Hollow Notes is, I mean, they're good songwriters. Yeah. I was actually going to bring that up because at one point you were talking about trying to do kind of what Daryl Hall had going on in your basement. Yes. I think you still maybe want to do something like that. Absolutely. Um, if if the right parts come together and, and I can muster up enough money to, to afford the right gear. A uh, couple cameras, a couple mics. Yeah, and- yeah. I mean, because that that to me is kind of the direction that music is going in as far as live music goes. Yeah. You know, a pandemic's not going to stop that. Right. You know, uh, that's something that, if you're stuck at home and you really want to see some live music, you you open up your laptop, you turn on your smart TV, you know, whatever it may be that you, whatever your source is, your tablet, your phone, you can dial in. Right. You can find it on the internet. You can, you can link up with the people that you, that you love to see, love to hear. 
and it's there, man. Like, I've become a big fan of the band 12 Foot Ninja. Okay. And they are, if, if the, the listeners aren't familiar with them, from Australia. Okay. And, you know, God, what the, what they're going through down there right now is just awful as, as a country with, oh, the, yeah. with the riots and everything and, and the enforced um, confinement, and, you know. But they found a way to get together via Zoom and record a couple live songs um, somewhat acoustically. The drummer had an electronic kit and, and it was very well put together and produced. It's awesome. Check them out. Now, they have, it's a it's like a two-song thing one of the songs is called deluge um very cool band and and really if 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 i were to pick a band right now uh, or a band or two to, to really just go down the rabbit hole with uh, you know go on youtube and just or spotify whatever 12 foot ninja 12 foot ninja man because these guys are just great some of their videos their music videos are are hysterical their talent level is off the charts they're really by and large they are a metal band mm-hmm. but they mix this kind of goes full circle with what we were talking about before. They mix so many genres into their songs, into their recordings, that um, there's really something for everybody there. That's the thing. I'm starting to notice uh, in popular culture now that genre bending is becoming a thing. And yeah. I'm sitting there like, I've been doing this for since 1996. <laughs> right. And, and there, there are definitely splashes of Brad Cox there because they'll be in the middle of a full-on metal riff and, and then, then break then, into something <laughs> Latin. And you're like, what, what just happened? Right. So this actually kind of is a nice segue into the debate I wanted to bring up with you, the debate between artistry and technical musicianship, because a lot of musicians form their opinions based off what they value more. Mm-hmm. So the really great bands out there, like your Soundgardens, your Alice in Chains, they do blend the two. They're really good musicians, but they're really good artists too. Mm-hmm. But there is that always that debate, like... It's kind of like an elitist attitude mm-hmm. where somebody might be like, oh, well, Dream Theater is fantastic, and here's all the technical reasons why Nirvana sucks. Or Dream Theater sucks. They don't get it, man. That, that music has no feeling. So which realm do you feel like you tend to lean on more than the other, man, if you were being honest? That's that's really hard. It is hard. Because, I know. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that, you know, I'll go from listening to some chains to – you know, to some, I don't know, Rod Stewart, you yeah. know, I'll, you know, the Beatles to, you know, Black Sabbath to, to Megadeth, you know, right. I'm so all over the place that there's really no, there's really no good answer. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that I'm a musician. I think you've also possibly grown out of it. Yeah. But when you're too. younger, it's like, I'm this. Yeah. And then when you get older, it's like, we were just saying like Daryl Hall, Hall mm-hmm. and Oates, stuff like that. It's like, yeah, I kind of do like it secretly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, that, and that's why, like I was saying earlier, I really um, have you know, the, the, the other eighties, you know, the eighties rock songs and, and the stones and everything. I, that all has really grown on me because I've learned to listen to it from a more analytical but, approach. Yeah. You know, I, I got to the point where I was kind of just trying to to feel the vibe of the song more, whereas before it was, okay, the drum parts have to do this part and the guitars have to be doing this. And, yeah. and if there was a, a note that was out of line or if the singer had just one slightly out of key moment, it was- Why oh, did they know. fix that? Yeah. And and now I'm like, it's part of the journey. It's really, you know, you're, you're listening- you're not listening to music to be a critic. You're listening to music to escape reality. And uh, Dollars to Donuts, there was somebody in the studio that made that call and said, no, leave it the way it is. because it- Yeah. Listen, Zeppelin had, and I keep going back to Zeppelin because they're one of my faves, but Zeppelin had several parts and songs where there were obvious wrong notes played. Right. And they said, you know what? That's staying. Yeah. The end of rock and roll is a wrong note. <laughs> No, but, I believe that. But nobody cares because right. it's it's just so awesome. Now, one thing that a lot of people may not associate with you if they haven't really hung out with you for too long, and that's that 
you are a great singer. I mean, you're Thank always you. associated with the drums. But I remember the earliest years of you coming over the house and you would find the acoustic on the side of the couch. You'd pick it up. We'd all be just throwing beers back and you'd just be sitting there almost a, a lot of times alone playing and singing whatever song you were working on at the time. So where did the, the voice develop from? It was just something that naturally came to you from playing things like the trombone or being around music? Or was it something that like you actually like had to work on? Like your dad's like, I, I think you should sing. And, and you had some kind of like training. You yeah, know, um, n- never, never really had any training. It was never even really encouraged, yeah. uh, you know, growing up for me to sing. It was just something that, and, and I always tell people, you know, when they ask me about how I learned how to do this, that, or the third, but my drumming is to Zeppelin as my singing is to the Beatles, you know, yeah. because, and that's why I always have so many songs with so many three and four part harmonies in them. It's because you listen to the Beatles and and that that was their their niche. They, they were, there were four voices in that band and they could sing together as well as anybody on the planet, if not better. Yeah. You know, um, and, and even listening back to in the nineties, uh, groups like boys to men, you know, just hearing those vocal harmonies, the, the dynamics involved, you know, there was so much to music. If you were a rocker at that time, you would pan a group like that, but they were extremely talented, incredibly talented. Yeah. Yeah. St- still are, still are. They're a little older, but you know, they, they can hang with the best of them. You've done a lot of music over the years. I, mm-hmm. I said in the very beginning, you've done a lot of albums. Here's here's my problem. None of your music is on Spotify. <laughs> it's yeah. not on iTunes. It's nowhere to be found. The only profile I could find for you on Spotify was your actual personal profile, which is where I found the bands that you're into. Yeah. But like, where is all your music? Uh, you know, o- over the years, I've, <laughs> I've posted my music on all the places that I thought were going to be around forever. That SoundCloud. SoundCloud. Still, still, which you know that people can't hear unless they open a SoundCloud account. Interesting. So that might be a reason you're not getting a lot of traction. Yeah, now, if they're be. on a desktop, they can. Yeah. But if they open yeah. it on their phone, on they the phone, cannot. Right. You have to actually. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's still stuff on on SoundCloud. MySpace was I, I was able to upload music there, and I, I don't know. I, you know, I guess I've never been like the most tech savvy guy, um, despite recording so much of what I do now digitally. Yeah. Uh. I just kind of record it and listen to it over and over again and adjust my mix every time I listen to it because something's off to me that time. You know, I don't know. I, I really don't. And and maybe with this new album kind of almost coming to completion here, uh, there will be new avenues. I kind of wanted to, first of all, um, talk to our, our friend Tony Corelli about finaling the album for me, you know, mastering the album Master, for me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, once it's mastered, then – the next step would be putting things on YouTube, um, hopefully iTunes, Spotify, you know, going full circle there. And finally, give you bringing one myself to the, to the new age of music. <laughs> Distro Kid. So when I had to re-upload, I, I've gotten about five or six of the albums up for Schizo Clips. I'm pointing to the trademark thing behind me. But if I turn my head, I have to re-EQ it in the, the mix of the podcast. But <laughs> Distro Kid, for $40, you can put up as much as you want for a year. I think CD Baby is like 60 bucks for every album. Mm-hmm. It starts getting expensive. You don't even want to do it. So I would recommend DistroKid. You could put up uh, the first two Speed Dogs. You could put up Out of the Cold. Any of your solo music, you could put like a single out that's two songs and then another single that's two songs, kind of reintroducing the music. So I, I'd recommend DistroKid. Okay. Well, yeah. Fair enough. Thank you. We've dealt with a lot of band members because we've been in a lot of bands with a lot of people, mm-hmm. and we have to deal with a lot of sticky situations because of that. <laughs> Luckily, both of us have been in a situation where, for the most part, everybody we've ever played with, we're still cool with. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that a lot of bands or band leaders can really say that. So how do you typically deal with those sticky situations with band members? 
Well, it, it is it is tough because it's more than a friendship. You, you really become family with these people yeah. because you spend so much time not only hanging with them, but you spend so much time letting them, as a songwriter, letting them kind of see into your soul where you're really not putting as much out there for people to see. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, again, there's this whole image that you have to put out there when you're a front man and right. you know everything's got to be there's got to be some mystery to it right uh so when you're really bringing these people that close i think that you develop more of a, a sibling bond with them right you know there's there's definitely more more to the kinship there you bring it right into your actual family i, I know yeah. that yeah you know and, and you know you, you spend time getting to know these people getting closer and closer to them and if for some reason you got to split ways. You really got to treat it like at that point, like a business. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's been some sticky situations. I know that I had a drummer at one point that, um, that we had to let go because he became really unreliable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got to a point where we were actually playing a show at the vault that, uh, that I had set up the whole show and, you know, we're, we're getting ready and the first band's getting ready to take the stage and my drummer's still not there and he's supposed to have all his stuff on the back line up top, you know, and he was still in there and I'm calling him, calling him, calling him. He wouldn't answer his phone. And finally, uh, we got a hold of his roommate and he said, oh yeah, his car's still in the garage. Oh no. And he lived in Annapolis. The vault's in Baltimore, obviously. Well, it was in Baltimore off Utah Street. Yeah. Not far from the stadium. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the Hippodrome Theater. And, uh, you know, at that point, panic started to set in because here I had, you know, 80 plus people there specifically for me, not to mention the other bands that were part of it. Right. And I wasn't sure if I was going to have a band to play, you need to play with. So <laughs> or if you were just going to be grabbing the acoustic or whatever. Yeah, I, I didn't know. And, and you know, the, the crazy part about that was two weeks later, we had a we had a um, we had a show at the record theater. And um, that was our first show at the record theater. So that really put me in a, in, a, in an uncomfortable situation. And uh, I remember after speaking with his roommate, he called me up and, oh, yeah, I'm on my way. I'm almost there. And I, I, There's no way you're almost here. I just talked to your roommate. He said your car was in the garage. And, of course, you know, no, no, there's no way. Uh, my car, I've been gone for blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, well long story short, he did make it just in time. Uh, and I had some good friends that were there to help us get all this gear up on the stage. And just in the nick of time, downbeat, we were rocking and everything was great. But at the end of that show, I had some serious decisions to make. Yeah. And uh, fortunately for me, I had uh, run into a, a very good longtime friend of mine from high school, Steve Poole, who I knew. You know, we were both drummers in high school. We yeah. played, we, you know, we jammed together a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh and I knew Steve was as solid a drummer. So I, I called him up and said, hey, man, look, I, I got this proposition. Uh, I need a drummer, and I need a drummer, like, fast. We got a show at the Record Theater. At the time, I think we had already sold 170-plus tickets, uh, you know, so there was no turning back. You yeah. Know, I, you, you go to a venue like that and say, hey, we got to cancel at the last second. You're not getting a second chance. So Steve said, yeah, man, you know, what do I got to learn? I said, well, we do all originals. And he didn't even flinch. Uh, I got him a CD of some of our material uh, within a day or two. Well, you, he had that talent. Like, you had that talent. You could just pick up a – like, you did it for Cole many times. Yeah, yeah, and, and still do on occasion. Yeah. Um, in fact, Dow reached out to me not that long ago, but I'm in the process of trying to work on my house to get it ready for sale while the market's still good for that. Yeah. Um, so, unfortunately, I had to turn him down. But, uh, you know, he, he's another guy who's been around forever and a good friend and uh, yeah. and, and a friend of the music industry as a whole in, in, in the local scene. But yeah, Steve came on board, and you know, two weeks later, we're playing the record theater. It's Steve's first gig with our with our band. We were Speed Dogs at the time. Yeah, 
and we killed it, man. We went out there and we just absolutely blew the blew the roof off the place. And that was another one of those nights where we probably had seventy people at 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 my house and yeah. in Forest Hill, Maryland. I was probably yeah. there. I'm pretty sure you were. I, mean, I was at most of the shows. Yeah. So you're a guy like me in the sense that you know you're writing the music, or at least the bulk of the music. You're booking the shows, you're promoting the shows, but and and the buck stops with you, mm-hmm. you know. And that's a lot of pressure. Did any of that pressure ever boil over into your family because you had family members in the band? You know, there there were times where you know I'd I'd kind of lean on the, the other guys in the band, like, hey, you know, do me a solid and just sell twenty tickets. Yeah, you know, and with my dad, it wasn't too bad because he worked in an auto shop. He was he was the shop foreman. He was an auto mechanic for forever. So you know, a lot of his guys were younger, like like us at yeah. the time, and they were into a party and they like loud rock and roll music. So he could he could generally sell me you know between fifteen to thirty tickets each show. Yeah, which most of the venues that we played in, you know, that that was more than enough. That's plenty. Yeah, yeah. The old Howl Daddies and the Brass Monkeys. But the, of the tickets world. at the time were five dollars. Yeah. Now they're like fifteen, twenty dollars. Yeah, different yeah, story yeah, for sure. Different. And and so we were fortunate to be on the on the front end of that. You know, when it came to selling tickets, it was it was for the most part a group effort. Even though there were times where I was the only one that really drove those ticket sales home, but I was fortunate to have some guys in the band like you, mm-hmm. like Paul Phil. Oh yeah, um, I still got his amp over there. Yeah, that's the old halfway broken amp. It still says halfway broken on the back of it. <laughs> It's it's ha- it's it's not halfway broken though. It actually works. No, well, that's still doing well. It's a it's a beautiful thing. I like the <laughs> the mesa on there. But yeah, um, you know, I was fortunate to have some guys like you guys that that could help with that. You know, that to to lighten the load or decrease the burden. I remember there was one record theater show when Paul was in the band that we he and I were actually competing to see who could sell the most tickets. Uh, Which is cool. It was great. Um, but that's what happened when Chris joined Schizo. Like he had the same fire and same pool of people and yeah. we could kind of work off each other because not everybody's going to sell tickets. Yeah. Well, some guys, they look at it more as I'm a musician. I'm here to play and I'm not here to be a ticket salesman and, you know, to each their own, but it's part of it. Yeah. It's part of the business. I mean, if you really want to get anywhere as a musician, if you're not, if you're not the salesman, then nobody's buying. Yeah, if you don't believe in it, why would someone else? Right, absolutely. Anyway, we were in a band together. Uh, we kind of came full circle in roughly, I want to say, 2013 or 14. And I was playing with Kings of a Revolution, which is your cover band. Mm-hmm. And you had joined uh, We Love the Underground for mm-hmm. a handful of shows, very similar to the way Schizo started. And we had about three to four sets of music. I ended up leaving because I wanted to focus on underground, but is the band still around? You know, it was up until COVID. Okay. And then that COVID, just destroyed COVID it. hit and, and we all did our own thing. And rightfully so, because, and I'm sure you would feel the same way, You know, the, the whole cover thing, it's fun. And, and it really definitely broadens your horizons musically. It helps you kind of learn how to do things that you couldn't or that you thought you couldn't do before. Right. Stretches your parameters vocally, instrumentally, you know, what have you. But at, at some point, the passion is just not there. You can only play the same song so many times before you kind of just are like, why am I doing this? You know, this it's I know it's music, but it's not I, I just don't feel the drive to do this every week. You know, <clears throat> even even when we were we were gigging, it was just kind of like it, at one point, at some point, it, it kind of felt like I was just going through the motions. Yeah. And I kind of got tunnel vision there. You know, I was with that band. I was doing vocals. I was doing drums. And that was it. And because of that, the rest of my, I don't know, abilities or talents, whatever you want to call it, playing different instruments kind of took a back seat to yes. that. And I didn't like that. I didn't. Yes. Because, you know, 
then when I would start to write, I'm trying to relearn my instruments all right. over again. And, you know, it is it is akin to riding a bike. You know, you're not really going to forget. Right. But at the same time, there's something to the fluid I was just, say, just keeping it going. Yeah, like I started writing those books. Mm-hmm. I was doing that during a time where I had Pat and Eric basically handling all the guitar work. So the only time I had to really pick up the guitar and play something was when I was going to the studio. If I was recording like a solo song or whatever, I'd learn the guitar parts for that song, go in and do it, and that was fine. But I did notice over time, like, man, I'm getting like, it's like I just held this thing for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't like that. So I totally understand that. And the issue I've always had, I, I think cover bands work their asses off. And yeah. they're, they're some of the hardest working musicians out there, 100%. hands down. Yeah. But for me, working a nine to five, I have like three or four disposable hours every day. Yeah. I'm either going to do something creative with it, work out. I'm going to be a dad family guy. I just don't see sitting down and learning you by Candlebox just because... I can mm-hmm. because I don't see myself ever getting to the point where it's like, oh, Friday night after you just worked all week, you're playing the tower. Now Saturday, <laughs> you're going to play trombones, and then Monday, you're going to work another week. It's like, I'm already working. I don't need any more money, and yeah. I'd rather spend my free time doing creative things. Yeah, I, I feel like it would maybe be different if if that was your job. Right. You know, that I, I could definitely sign on for that kind of right. lifestyle because I love playing music um, with I, every fiber of my being. And we got to the point with like Full Circle, Kings of the Revolution, where we were practicing every Sunday for for about two years, yeah. I still revisit those songs mm-hmm. because I didn't know them prior. And <laughs> it's I was funny gonna, how that works. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you because I, I haven't forgotten them. Yeah, like when are we going to have a reunion? Even if it's just to jam. Yeah, just get in the basement. I don't care if um, what's his name, Donnie. Donnie can play some of the songs. I'll play some of the songs. Whatever, it'd be fun. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I would I would enjoy that. I, I know I know um, I know Pops would as well because he still sits with his uh, with his bass cabinet down there and plays along with some of those old songs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we didn't even really get into the music because you have a ton of music, but we're going to hear a song called The Gun. Uh, Tell me about the song The Gun. Man, uh, that's another one of those songs that we had talked about before that kind of is, it crosses genres because you've got the the kind of funky slap bass in in the choruses. Yeah. uh, And, and, you know, the multi-part harmony on vocals and uh, the driving rock on, on, it's it's a a musical collage, if you will. Okay. Is there an underlying meaning to the song? Well, yeah, it's it has a lot to do with what we talked about earlier about how people are on social media politics. Um, you know, it, there's 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 a a part to that that has to do with you know the words being bullets and emotion is the gun. You know, if you have a gun in your hand, there have been TV shows, there have been movies, there have been real life situations where you're told once you squeeze that trigger, you can't take it back. Right, and that's kind of how social media has made everything. Once you hit enter once you click send it's there you can't take it back so with the words being the bullets and emotion being the gun Mm -hmm. you got to learn how to handle your emotions you got to learn how to handle your gun and that is really the underlying um meaning behind that that whole song cool and you can take the different verses and you can take the course you can take the words and you can twist them into a million different meanings because everybody's going to come up with their own meaning because i feel like I, I don't ever like to tell 100% what my lyrics mean to anybody because what those words say to me may say something completely different to somebody else. And yeah. I want I want people to get their own. I want people to feel their – like I want people to have – to make that song their own. You ever prefer your misheard lyrics over the actual lyrics? Yes. Oh, man. It's the worst. It's like, why weren't you saying this? This is so much better than what you came up with. <laughs> Listen, I, sometimes I'll be singing along to the song and I will sing the wrong words and I'll go, my God, why didn't I sing that? Yeah, it's better. That was better. Yeah. 
Well, Mike, thank you for coming onto the show. Ladies and gentlemen, this is The Gun. Thank you. How are we supposed to know where we'll be forever? I don't even know. Come.